Hi, welcome to another episode of the Commonwealth Magazine podcast in partnership with Transit Matters. My name is Josh. I am a board member at Transit Matters. And I'm Jim Aloisi. I'm also on the Transit Matters board. Today, we're joined by Jay Monty. He's the transportation planner for the city of Everett. Um, we brought. Uh, we thought it would be good to have Jay on the show because uh, the city of Everett has done some pretty exciting things very quickly uh, in, in transportation, um, especially uh, with regards to, to buses. And so we wanted to have Jay come in and talk about that, uh, near-term, far-term plans. Um, but I thought, first of all, could you help the listeners understand who may have a very vague sense of Everett? You know, I, I feel like it's one of those places that if you haven't lived there or have a relative or a friend there, you probably haven't spent very much time there. Um, and so many people may have this vague sense, but may not really understand what's happening in Everett in the present uh, and where you feel like that's going. So could you give us a sense of, of that, um, not only in terms of demographics, um, but also your responses and what you're, you're, what you're seeing as trends and your necessary responses in the future? Sure. And first, thank you, uh, Jim and Josh, for having me on. Um, Everett's a city. We're about 50,000 residents. We're three miles north of downtown Boston. In many ways, we're no different than Somerville or Medford or Chelsea or Cambridge. Um, we are an inner core community. We have um, a demographic history, which is similar to those communities, um, you know, large immigrant population. Um, and, you know, former historically industrial uh, base that supported the economy. Um, and today we're starting to feel the effects of gentrification in the same way that uh, Somerville and Cambridge have. And um, as that wave sort of moves eastwards towards Everett and Chelsea, um, we're seeing housing prices go up. We're seeing um, lower-income families being pushed out. Um, and we're seeing, of course, our transportation network be overburdened um, by the demand of folks who need to get to jobs in Boston, South Boston, Cambridge, Kendall Square, places like that. Do you find a lot of uh, a lot of people in, Cam- in, the, in Everett sort of going to access jobs in destinations like the downtown of Boston or Kendall Square? Do you have a sense of the sort of flow of people when they're accessing jobs? So we did the Everett Transit Action Plan about three, uh, two and a half years ago with uh, MassDOT, and we looked at some of those patterns. Um, you know, we see a lot of it as folks, um, we're, we're still a very working class community, so a lot of folks who work at the airport, uh, work at the produce markets mm-hmm. in, in Chelsea, um, but also a growing number of folks who um, work in South Boston, um, work in downtown, working service jobs. Um, one of the things we found is that the peak travel times for folks in Everett um, don't exactly match what we consider peak travel times uh, in the region because these folks are going to work at 4 or 5 in the morning Mm. um, to work at coffee shops, restaurants, hotels, uh, places like that. Um, So the patterns are are largely the same, but they're different in some of those respects. So Everett is sort of a typical place that would benefit, for example, from what some of the work that we've done with the T to to increase the, the time the buses are, are, are moving around, the sort of overnight bus and the early morning bus? Absolutely. I mean, we, our early morning buses, those 5 a.m., 5.30 buses, are um, cross loads. Mm-hmm. Those first trips of the day, they're leaving folks on the curb because they can't fit them on the bus. And the frequencies at that time of day are typically less than as you get into the 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock hour. Same thing at night. Um, I've worked overnight shifts doing construction jobs and Everett, and those, those 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock midnight buses are, are very full folks coming home from work. Yeah, but the data that we're aware of on the early morning pilot, which began in April, is that it's been sort of successful beyond anyone's uh, anticipation, and I think probably across the board. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you guys have been doing a lot 
recently they've been getting national attention on uh, improving bus transit, doing pilots and experimenting. How did that come about? What was the mayor's thinking, your thinking about making that the focus of your sort of mobility uh, attention? So the mayor, I think, has recognized for quite a while that, you know, better access, transportation, mobility is key to um, the city's, you know, growth um, economically. And he realized this before he brought me on board, um, but that's really been my my task is to, um, you know, make ever a more accessible place, um, both within but also to its neighboring communities and, and to Boston. Um, one of the first things we worked on was this Everett Transit Action Plan with MassDOT in 2015 and 2016. And it was a bit of a focused look at Everett, you know, by itself without you know, looking at the whole region um, with regard to transit. We did demographic studies. We looked at, you know, employment nodes, you know, where are people going, when are they going, what does the future demographic of Everett look like um, that we need to be planning for. Um, and as it turns out, not only are we heavily transit dependent today and, and overburdening the system, um, but the transit ridership is forecast to almost double in the next 25 years. So uh, we've got a lot of work to do to make the existing system work more efficiently, um, but also plan um, to really grow the system to accommodate that that um, that demand. So at, you know, we we had a number of uh, you know ideas, proposals ranging from low-hanging fruits to kind of the big ticket infrastructure items. The low-hanging fruits could be uh, making the buses run more efficiently. The the big infrastructure items could be expanding the Silver Line. We even looked at um, a spur of the Orange Line that might run from Sullivan Square up Route 99 towards uh, Route One. And uh, we finished the study, I want to say in October, and um, you know, the mayor was really looking to get something on the ground quick and, and, and show some progress. And uh, so this concept of, of uh, running dedicated transit lanes for the local buses was something that MassDOT had um, and continues to, to push as a way to improve the efficiency of the system. Um, we determined that Route 99 Broadway was wide enough to do it, and um, we set up some initial meetings. We found out from the T, okay, what do you need? In terms of cross-section, they needed 11 feet. Um, and if we gave them 11, 11-foot lane, they could drive their bus down it. So from that point, we um, initially we were going to take about six months. We were going to, you know, really engineer it out, put the paint on the road, and, and do it do it right. Um, but the thought came about that if we could squeeze enough efficiency out of these buses, we might be able to run more trips and really, you know, increase the capacity of the, of the routes. And um, at the time, it was October, and planning for the spring, the T said they needed uh, to, to know what the spring schedule will be by December. And so our response was, well, tell you what, if we throw down some cones, we take the lane for a couple of days, you guys can um, run the buses, figure out what the time savings is. We won't make a big deal of it. We won't tell anybody. We're just going to do it, and then we'll go away like nothing ever happened, and we'll come back in the spring. Um, and they said, okay. So the next week, we were out there putting the cones down. And we gave residents uh, about four days' notice. And that Monday morning in December, we, we ran the, the dedicated lane. And uh, it, it was a huge success by the second, third day. Um, you know, we were expecting to get, uh, you know, we were expecting the phones to blow up with complaints about loss of parking, about, you know, who knows what. Um, but in fact, we got the opposite. And we had folks who drive cars calling in telling us how much better the traffic was because there wasn't a bus stuck in front of them. Um, the MBTA w was on the buses doing surveys with the riders. Um, they were all, you know, ecstatic that their commute was, was dramatically shorter. 
And uh, by the third day, fourth day, um, TV crews are out, the newspapers are out, checking this out, and um, the mayor decides, hey, let's let's keep going. Um, you know, we were going to do it for a week, but we'll, we'll do it next week. And if it works out next week, we'll do it the week after. How long, how, how long was the corridor that you began with? It's about a mile and a half. And the way it worked, it was you, you basically took a parking lane out at peak. Is that right? That's right. So from 4 a.m. to 9 a.m., we take out a parking lane. Um, the previous you know, version of the road was one wide travel lane and a parking lane. It was wide enough to really do two travel lanes. Um, so we converted that parking lane to, to uh, And bus. tell us a little bit about the challenges associated with that. How people, was this residential, commercial, both? How did people react to it? Um, did you have any problems with having to tow a lot of people? How, how did that all work? It was a lot easier than I think we, we thought. Um, it's, a, it's a mix of businesses and residents. Um, we had done a parking study on a portion of the corridor the year prior, and it was not related to the bus lane specifically, but it gave us some data to know what the average utilization was of parking during these hours. And what we knew from that was was until about 9 a.m., we were, we were under 50% utilization on the corridor, and that was in the busy spots. So we knew that in the less busy spots, we were something even lower than that. So to take parking from half the road, we knew that really we weren't going to create a situation where Nobody could find a parking space. Um, certainly, there were a couple of businesses who pushed back. Um, they were coffee shops, you know, morning breakfast places who genuinely believed that that parking space in front of their shop was driving the bulk of their business. Um, what really helped us, I think, and, and we, we sort of uh, nicknamed this, you know, the, the pilot being the process. Um, we didn't do public meetings. We didn't have, you know, we didn't do a lot of outreach beforehand. Um, but we tried to do outreach as this was occurring so that um, we could truly balance, you know, those types of concerns versus other uh, feedback we get from riders, from drivers, and get a fuller picture of who we were affecting and in, in what way. Um, and as it turned out, you know, the parking was not an issue for us. And now you've taken the dedicated lane to a new level this year with an, a level boarding experiment. Can you talk a little bit about how that has sure. worked? Uh, so we added a couple of components this year. We added uh, signal priority. Um, so when the bus lane is running, we have a, a video detection method that detects the bus and uh, will give the bus priority at intersections. Uh, and we also added the level boarding component. And that was done through a grant with the Bar Foundation. Um, they put out an RFP about uh, a year ago, year and a half ago uh, for was called their Boston BRT initiative, and the concept was to pilot um, different aspects of bus rapid transit, and those could be um, dedicated lanes, um, signal priority, level boarding, um, and off-board fare collection. Now, we already have the dedicated lane. We we're already planning the signal priority, so um, of what was left, the level boarding seemed like it might be a neat experiment. Um, we didn't really know how we would do it, but we put it in for the grant anyway, and we got it, and um, what we ended up using was a product called Zicla. It's a company out of Spain, and they make essentially it's a temporary sidewalk. And they're used. Um, New York City uses them. They're used in Europe in a few spots, typically to build curb extensions. So, where a city may want to have a bus board from the travel lane rather than pull up against the curb, they extend the sidewalk out using this product. And they're these modular one foot by one foot plastic blocks. Um, and that allows, you know, a sidewalk surface that it bolts to the asphalt. Um, when we spoke with the T and we determined the height of the bus doors, 
um, it looked like this product would be um, the right height if we stacked that on top of the existing sidewalk, and that's what we did. Um, so we essentially stacked an additional six or seven inches on top of the existing sidewalk to uh, make the walkway level with the bus door. Um, and by and large, it's worked fairly well. We've had some issues. Um, the variation of heights of the buses is a little more than we had anticipated. So we do have some buses that um, ended up being a little lower than the platform. And what that meant was for the wheelchair ramp, um, it became very difficult to deploy that ramp. So we've had to um, shim the road in a few spots to get the bus up to the right elevation. Um, and there's also a, lot of, a big training factor with the drivers to get the bus close enough to you know, approach it correctly and to depart it correctly. Um, so it's been a little challenging, but I think it's uh, demonstrated the point very well, and it's certainly given us an idea of how uh, we might deploy this in the future and what issues we would need to do a little more work on to make it work uh, 100%. Have you used that same item to create bus islands or um, bulb outs? We haven't used it for that purpose, um, but that's typically been the purpose that, it, that it's used for. So we're, we were the first application of it in, in the level boarding sense. Good. Are you going to continue to use uh, level boarding now as just a routine element of this? So for right now, I think we need to address the, the ADA issues that we haven't fully solved yet with mm -hmm. these platforms. I think the desire is there to do it. Yep. Um, but we need to do some work with the T. Um, I think right now with the buses, different models being different heights, that really complicates the issue. So I think it may be some time before we can deploy this in a, you know, so this is a real test bed. Everyone's learning important stuff. Definitely. And then they can make adjustments as mm -hmm. we go along. Have you had other transportation departments from around the, the metro area contact you? Uh, yeah, we have. Uh, so actually, f the bus lane, um, we've been contacted from folks all over the country, from California to Minnesota to, um, you know, here in the Northeast. Uh, a lot of folks have, have been uh, interested in doing something similar. And um, as part of the Boston BRT effort, with the Bar Foundation, Arlington is going to be launching their own uh, dedicated lane. Um, as you know, Roslindale launched one earlier this year. Um, level boarding has gotten some attention from, you know, more locally, I think. Uh, but as I said, you know, I think we're still um, working through some teething issues with that. So we're not ready to take that prime time yet. So the pilot is the process. I, I love that. And I think that that should become more of a widespread um, phrasing. Um, but you compared yourself in, towards the beginning uh, with communities of Somerville, Medford, uh, Cambridge, um, communities that are, are not known for quick, as quick of a process as you're, as you're describing. Um, what have you learned about the process? Do you think there's something exceptional about Everett that allowed you to roll this out more quickly? Um, and what can other communities learn from that? I think every community is different in terms of the expectation of their uh, population regarding public outreach and the amount of feedback that folks expect before a change is made in the community. Um, certainly places like Cambridge and now Somerville, um, there's a very high expectation that the community be involved in a lot of decision making, whether it be parking or transit or zoning. Um, I think Everett was coming from a place where historically the city had been disinvested in for a very, very long time. Um, there was never a public process for many things. Um, and I think folks we're a little more open to change, a little more open to take a risk, and at the same time, not they didn't have the expectation that we were going to come to them first. Um, that's not entirely true, but I think um, to the degree that we had a little more flexibility in how we approached our residents and when when we did it, um, we were able to say, okay, we're going to try this pilot, and you know what, we're going to do it for a week. Tell us what you think. We can always make it go away, but but we're going to take this risk and, and, and see what happens. Um, 
I think the ability to do that is partly the responsibility of the mayor, who obviously took the political risk of, of doing that, uh, but doing so knowing the expectations of his, his, con- his constituents. So I know that you're working now on a northbound um, lane uh, in the evenings for, uh, I guess, people coming back from from downtown Boston. Um, in addition to that, are there other uh, plans of extending bus lanes or adding them to other streets? And are you going to use the same pilot as the process method, or are you doing something more with more process involved? So the mayor is very interested in doing this wherever we can do it. Um, the reason that the afternoon makes sense is that there is actually a cost for the city to operate this lane. We have to have staff that uh, monitor it and parking enforcement and things like that. So to do you know an additional lane in the morning where we've already uh, repurposed one uh, parking enforcement staff, we would then have to do another one to do a different another lane. Whereas in the afternoon, we haven't opened an afternoon lane yet, so we may have some more flexibility with our staff there. Um, I don't think we'll roll it out in quite the... Um, quite as quickly as we did the first one. And I think that's more out of respect to our residents and our businesses. We know that the first time around, um, we took a risk. We, we did it hard and fast. Um, but we did it right, I think, and we got folks at least on board with the concept. We proved the concept. And so I think folks are more open to you know expansion. Um, and with that tr- level of trust, I think we want to be respectful and, and do a little more work on the parking, do a little more work you know, we know in the afternoon parking utilization is a little higher. So we are going to start, you know, affecting, um, you know, whether people can park and where they can park. So, you know, I think I, we're not going to do it in some, you know, drawn out uh, multi-year fashion, but I think we are going to um, make sure that we've studied the issues um, that have been brought up um, by our residents when we did it the first time and, and make some effort at uh, resolving those before we go ahead and do it. Has the T developed any um, data about ridership increase during this pilot? So we haven't actually looked at that yet. Um, it's something I'm somewhat curious to know. Uh, you know, really you'd have to look at that year over year. So mm-hmm. um, starting in December, we would look at December of 2015 to December 2016, December 2017. Right. So um, I think over the last few months that data should be available. Um I, I think it's it's good to know and it's important, but at the same time, we view this as a best practice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we want to develop, you know, good transit in the city, um, we ought to do it regardless of of what um, you know minor changes in ridership might tell us. So this is this is a best practice. So I I was reading um, just recently uh, in the uh, Ever Independent about the afternoon bus um, lane that you're working on. And there was an interesting, it, it sounds like, you know, you mentioned the parking utilization's higher, but you were also mentioning in that article uh, when you were interviewed that the parking utilization overall, um, it, may, it may appear that all the street spots are taken, but there's more parking that seems invisible to people, and the utilization overall of the parking is more in the 50 to 60% range. So I'm wondering if you could tell us what you've learned about fears of parking versus realities and kind of the change curve as people move through that. Yeah, I think that's a common, uh, you know, issue is that street spaces are obviously, you know, they're prime spaces. They're going to fill up before the parking lot behind the business fills up. And so uh, folks driving to town, they think there's no parking because the street's full. But in fact, behind the storefronts, there's, you know, empty lots or half-empty lots. And just as a back-of-the-envelope calculation, we figure there's probably, you know, upwards of 600, 700, 800 spots 
in the downtown Everett area when you add up all the private lots, the municipal lots, and the street parking. To implement the next phase of the bus lane, uh, we've got to take about 25 to 28 spaces. So when you put it in that context, you start to realize that on-street parking from a capacity standpoint is, is somewhat insignificant. Um, but we, it's all about how we manage that parking. So are we encouraging folks to park on the street today? Probably. It's easy. It's cheap. Um, and, and maybe we should rethink about how we manage these spaces to make the off-street parking a little more attractive. Um, so, you know, you know, I think it, it's, it's – a lot of us – change in perspective, change in how we look at um, our behavior. Are there plans, because I guess in my mind I was thinking, oh, well, maybe there's things you can do to make the parking that's underutilized more visible or to work with businesses or organizations that have spare evening capacity um, to encourage them to open that up to the public. Exactly. And I think when I, when I say we're going to take a little more um, thorough approach to the next phase of the bus line, those are the types of things we want to do. We want to you know, reach out to these businesses who have empty lots at 4.30 and say, you know, are you willing to uh, install a city meter? We can make some sort of agreement that, you know, folks can park in your lot. You know, they can get some revenue, and we can find some additional parking capacity. Uh, we have other public facilities that, um, you know, schools, uh, you know, city buildings that have parking that very quickly becomes available after 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock. And so um, that capacity for parking is clearly there. But as you say, we need to do some more work and, and manage that correctly to uh, to make sure we utilize it. Yeah. I was wondering if we could just shift a little bit. I'd like to talk a little bit about what's going on in Everett these days, jobs growth, um, the potential, for example, to extend the Silver Line 3 service from Chelsea to Everett, which I've heard people thinking about as a mm -hmm. real opportunity to begin continuing to link communities. What, what's, what's, your, uh, what's going on with that and what's your thinking on that? So I think there's two ways to look at transit. One is to look at how do we better serve our existing population, and that's the Broadway Route 99 corridor and the bus lanes and, and improving that existing, existing service. When you look at Everett, um, it's really bisected by Route 16, Reach Parkway. And to the south of the parkway is a lot of old, vacant industrial land um, that's ripe for redevelopment. And what we're seeing already in Chelsea as the Silver Line has been expanded is uh, developers are you know, signing up pretty quick to get these parcels developed. Um, we, even in Everett, even though it's Silver Line terminus in Chelsea, the corner of Everett nearest to the Silver Line, we've permitted uh, something close to a 1,000 units in the last uh, couple of years. So um, the other way of looking at transit is, you know, how do we use transit to um, provide housing to redevelop these parcels? And that's what the Silver Line fills. Um, this whole half of the city that is, is right now inaccessible, um, but it's also undeveloped, it's brownfields, it's pieces of land that can fill a big um, void where we need space for housing, for jobs, for um, you know, economic centers. So bringing the Silver Line, as, as you know, is, is the Silver Line is built on um, the MBTA commuter rail right-of-way. And that same right-of-way continues beyond Chelsea. It goes all the way to uh, the Mystic River behind the uh, Encore Casino that's being constructed currently. Uh, so that's about a two-mile extension. Um, we, we think of uh, – we, we hear the term urban ring, and that's somewhat of a dirty word around parts, but um, this really is uh, the realization of the urban ring, too. This is bringing transit um, out of South Boston, through East Boston, Chelsea, Everett, and eventually into Somerville and Kendall Square. 
Well, nomenclature aside, um, you know, one of the key elements of a strong transit system is its ability to give people the connections that they want and the access that they want. And sounds to me that the opportunity to take the Silver Line 3, which I think has been pretty well determined to be successful as, an, as a strategic extension of the system into, into Everett, makes a lot of sense. Um, just because we know what is happening there in terms of gro jobs growth, in terms of uh, destinations that people will want to have access to. I mean, it's not a theory. It's a reality. Right. And, and, and right now, the connection that doesn't exist, even for folks driving, is that connection over to Cambridge and Kendall Square, which is a huge, um, you know, blossoming employment center. Yes. Uh, that, that connection alone um, is, is huge for Everett. Uh, it's also huge for Cambridge and Somerville who, who need, uh, you know, to find places for their employees to commute from. So um, it, it's really a, a very strategic investment that I think could have a lot of bang for the buck. Now, I've heard um, that Everett, uh, in, in the plan, that the study that you talked about at the top, uh, had looked at also into an Orange Line spur. And I know that Everett had an Orange Line stop um, from the old elevated until I think maybe 1975 that your trackless trolleys and then your bus is connected to, which now they go on to Sullivan Square instead. Um, what are your thoughts about um, that being a reality in Everett's future? I, I think it's a long way off, but I also think it's something we need to keep um, on the radar screen. If, if, no, if for no other reason than to to kind of judge our other transit investments against um, something that is very large. And, you know, we actually looked at the orange line in a couple of uh, ways. Through the transit study, we said that, or we found that, uh, you know, the density of Everett is it's dense enough to support a subway, um, as it did until 1974. Um, so there's, there's that piece of it. But also, um, you know, Route 1 and the whole North Shore funnels down um, through Everett, through Chelsea, and there's no good transit intercept in the way you have at Alewife at Route 2 or um, Braintree on, on I-93. So we further that thought a little more with the Lower Mystic Working Group, and we actually asked um, – CTPS to not design, but to build a concept model of what an orange line could look like. And we did several iterations, um, some that ended in Everett and some that went all the way to Route 1 at uh, Copeland Circle in, in Revere. Um, that's the intersection of Route 60 by the, by the movie theater. And of all the things we looked at in the Lower Mystic Working Group, the extension of the orange line actually had the biggest impact in terms of taking cars off Route 1, off the Tobin Bridge, Sullivan Square. It was, it was by and large, had the single largest impact. It was also $5 billion if you built it out in its full you know, extent. So it's, it's certainly not something we're doing tomorrow or even the next 10 to 15 years. Um, but it gives you this important perspective that if we're really serious about moving the needle on mode share and moving large numbers of people by transit, these are the types of projects that can actually do it. Um, the bus lanes are great. The Silver Line is great. But uh, in terms of sheer numbers, neither of those can match what you can do with heavy rail transit. So, um, you know, I think it's an important project to keep in the background. Um, and maybe there will be, come a day where we can either afford it or, or justify building it. Um, we found the ridership on the proposed Orange Line Spur was really limited in part by the size of a parking garage you could build at, on Route 1. So the demand was something like in the tens of thousands per day um, on the, on if you if you were to build it out. So it's there's a lot of value there, but it's expensive, and I think it's just something we keep in the background for now while we uh, build out these these smaller ideas first. 
Well, Jay, I want to thank you for coming in and chatting with us today. Uh, it's been a very interesting conversation. I'm glad to be able to highlight uh, Everett and some of the, the quick action that My you're pleasure. taking there. Congratulations to you and the mayor. I think for real leadership in this area, you're showing us all how this stuff can be done. And I think the sort of pilot as process is, an, is instructive uh, for, for all of us who are thinking about improving mobility in the inner core. Sure, thank you. This has been another episode of the Commonwealth Podcast in partnership with Transit Matters. Thank you for joining us.